Hi and welcome to the We Need a Roads podcast and David, next Saturday night we're sending you back to the future. Actually we're not and unfortunately you will still be 30. But on a loaded episode, <laughs> well that, that was as good as I could get today I'm afraid man, you will that, still be closer to, closer to me in age. That wasn't good, that was bad, that's I mean, made me more depressed, yeah, that was a bad start. We don't want we don't want depressed David on here. We want happy, loving stuff, David. That David's packed his bags and fucked off. He's he's not here right now. And on today's episode, we're going to be taking a look at where the cruel dads sing, or as I'm calling it, the hot girl in a swamp film. Also, I finally binged my way through the third series of Netflix's Umbrella Academy. David braves Raccoon City to tell us about the new Resident Evil series on Netflix. Apple TV takes us into a prison to catch up with an already incarcerated killer in Blackbird. And finally, the Russo brothers' first film after Avengers Endgame, starring Captain America Chris Evans and Ken himself, Ryan Gosling, in the blandly titled The Grey Man. No, it's not a spitting image spin-off of the former UK Prime Minister John Major, and that is a deep cut indeed for any UK fans who remember spitting image, the, satir- the satirical news puppet show that was a classic of its time. And first up, we're off to the swamp. Reviews. Where the Crawl Dads Sing is based on a massively best-selling international book by Delia Owens and stars rising British actress Daisy Edgar-Jones in what could be for her a star-making term. It's produced by Reese Witherspoon and directed by little-known American director Olivia Newman. Indeed, her only previous directing credit was a 2018 Netflix drama, First Match, about a girl joining an all-boys high school wrestling team. Yep, I've not heard of it either. I will mention, though, that I saw this at a preview screening on the hottest day ever, so, of course, going to a cinema seemed like a good idea. You know, air conditioning, ices. Aircon, 100%. And ices. And ices. The biggest icy I've ever had in and my life, ices? Man. As in, like, icy. The, the... Oh, okay. And, yes, I had the biggest icy ever. You remember ices, David. You bought the Batman bobblehead one, remember? Uh, yeah, I remember. I love that Batman bobblehead. Watching a film set in a swamp in the Carolinas maybe not be the best idea in a heatwave either. Now, I knew nothing about this film going into it again, other than it was about a girl in a swamp. An improbably attractive girl whose main hardship seems to be she has no shoes and a little bit of dirt on her face. I actually had no idea what the genre of the film was going to be, but the film is this kind of a mishmash of romance and courtroom drama. Now, the film begins with the police finding the body of a young man in the marshes, and of course, Kaya, who is played by Daisy Edgar-Jones, our main character, is the prime suspect. Now, we see the young Marsh girl grow up in a swamp with an abusive father, and one by one her siblings leave her until even her father leaves her one day, and she's left alone. Later, she befriends a young local boy called Tate, who teaches her how to read, and of course they fall in love. But as we know, these things never run smoothly. Kind of a romance, kind of a coming-of-age story, as Kaya learns the ways of the outside world, and it's kind of got the courtroom drama element to it with David Straven playing her kindly lawyer. This film has taken a massive kick in in most of the reviews so far. And do you know what? It's not a great film by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, from what friend of the pod author Charlie Gallagher told me, who has read the original book, and we discussed it briefly in the office the other day, he said when the book came out in 2019, it was the book of the year. It was, you know, the book that everyone read. And what the film seems to fail at is really conveying the grittiness and hardships that Kaya faced in the book. In the film, she sells some cockles to some store owners, and that's about it in terms of her struggling once she's on her own. You know, she's cruising around the swamps in a boat. like a struggle, mate. That sounds like quite a nice little life to lead. A lot of this stuff in the book, which is apparently there in the book, is just not there in the film. You know, she's cruising around the swamps in a nice little boat. She spends a lot of her time drawing pictures of the local swamps, fauna, flora, and animal life. You taught her to draw so nice as well, man. Like, I've seen in the trailer, there's some bloody good drawings there. 
That's some damn good art. Just a natural talent. She's just a poor Marsh girl who's suddenly an amazing artist. Okay. Yeah. Nice. I wish I had talent. Well, you know, you 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 have a sausage dog. That's, that's yeah. That's the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess. Also, we're never really told why she is so ostracized from the town, other than oh, she's the poor Marsh girl. We have one scene really early on when she's still a child, and she goes to the school for the first time with no shoes and gets laughed at. But bar that, we really see her interact with anyone else. So where does this fear of the otherness that we keep getting told about really come from? Well, what I can say is that Daisy Edgar-Jones is still great as Kaya. And she's easily going to go on to be a major star in the near future if she keeps giving great performances even in average films like this. There is minimal voiceover. And we know from my recent rant about Yellowstone 1883, that is a bugbear. But when there is voiceover... What Kaya tells us is economical, and it moves the story along. And in other words, it matters. It actually does what it's supposed to do. It's not just random bollocks. Hashtag 1883. Now, there are multiple scenes that are beautifully shot in and around New Orleans, Louisiana, which is funny because it was supposed to be set in North Carolinas in the book. But I guess to international viewers, all American swamps look the same. They're the same, man. There's just water and just trees and stuff. Everywhere in America's the same. You take like and crocodiles. Yeah, like yeah, Carolina. I know exactly where that is to Louisiana. They're right next door. It's like down the road. You can pop there for a curry. I, I I would not believe that curry was a big thing there, but hey, there you go. You learn something new every day. I will say a special shout out to the British cinematographer Polly Morgan, who has done some great work lending the swamps. And indeed, for me, the two biggest strengths of the film are the cinematography and uh, Edgar Jones' performance. Now, David, you know a little bit about some slight controversy behind the book and the author, uh, Delia Owens. Well, I I don't know it per like the ins and outs of it. It's more just the general overview of something that something rather dodgy that went down in with Delia Owens, and it's the kind of the whole book was marred in some sort of controversy as well. Because the long long story short of it, uh, she did. There was an ABC film crew that went out there into Zambia uh, that recorded and filmed uh, someone, an unidentified man um, who was a poacher or a suspected poacher um, getting shot by somebody with, with blurred face and it was all happening off screen and there was more shots and stuff that was being fired. So after this uh, ABC thing uh, filmed aired, uh, the Zambian government opened police investigation into the, into the incident. Body was never found. The cameraman claimed it was the author's stepson, uh, Christopher Owens. Um, who fired the gun and uh, Delia Owens has been like, no, 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 it's not me. Is this not essentially the same as what's basically going on in the film? She gets tried for a murder and it's basically trying to get away with a murder. There's there's, there's, you, there's key draws that could be taken between what's happened in Zambia with the shooting. This is an ongoing investigation as well, I should probably say. So that's that's interesting. It's ongoing, but she's managed to write the book, sell the book, make the film about it. Well, the case is still going because you think, especially if the cases were on the book were similar, that she'd probably be stopped from doing that. So that's um, a bit interesting. It happened a long time ago. This as well. This happened in like 1996, I think 1995. 1995. This happened. So since then, but there's it's it's. I think it's always sort of been just rumbling on in the background. Has always been a part of. Uh, it's one of those things that's kind of 
not gone anywhere with it. And do you think it's because when the book obviously came out in 2019, it's kind of reignited interest in the case and perhaps it's all kind of snowballed on a bit from there again? Perhaps, yes, because perhaps. it does we're, seem Again, to we're just speculating here because we don't actually know any of this stuff. I would say that one of the areas the film fails in is its believability and the poorly sketched other characters. All the grittiness of the book seems to have been filtered out and it's almost like Edgar Jones is filmed using a hot girl in a swamp Instagram filter. Indeed, you could call the, call the film Hot Girl in a Swamp. You know, it's a little bit of dirt on her face, and I'm pretty sure she's got really good shampoo out there. I get the feeling there's this big disconnect between how gritty the book is and how she has to fight for a lot of stuff, and they're just like, oh, well, it's all internal in the book, therefore we're not going to bother putting it in the film. The courtroom drama parts of the film really just feel tacked on, and there's almost no evidence to tie Kaya to the crime, and you never feel at any point like she's in any real serious danger. You get two token black characters that feel like they've been pulled out from a mid-1990s film, and everyone else is whiter than white in the film. Also, right, and this, this is only a minor bit of the story, like when it says, when her family leave her one by one with her drunken, abusive dad, why did not one of them try and take her away with them? Like, they are such utter shitheads, a lot of them. Indeed, later in the film, one of her siblings returns, and they immediately reconnect, and I'm like... Wait, there's no blame there. You left her behind with that drunk asshole, And she's like fine with it when that uh, character comes back. I just didn't get it at all, man. Oh, I was going to say, didn't Taylor Swift do a um, do a song for the film? Yeah, there's a song. There's a nice little acoustic song at the end. Um, uh, I don't think many people stuck around to listen to it. So I don't think there was many Taylor Swift fans in the uh, audience. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I, I don't think it was that big a draw. I would say overall, though, this is a perfect Sunday afternoon film with a great performance by Edgar Jones in an average film. It's got amazing cinematography, and from people who've read the book, the general consensus is they kind of missed the mark completely on what made the book work. My final thoughts are, it's less into the wild and more into a glamping site near Glastonbury. Have you ever been glamping? No, but I imagine it's what that... Exactly like this, is it? Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Did she get, like, running water and stuff to the shack? Did it have, like, electricity? Oh, of course, yeah. There's a whole su- there's a whole sequence which she gets... Electricity put in there. Oh, yeah. Nice. Good for her. She's not really ostracised much then, is she? She's kind of just, you know, just living out there in a, on her own in a shack because she wants to be... Sounds like quite a nice fucking life, really, to be away from other humans for a bit and just live out there peacefully on your own. Yeah, man. That I mean, sounds uh, rather pleasant right now. What makes What makes me laugh is every time she meets a new boy, she immediately falls in love with him. And, like, the first time she's like, oh... Are you my boyfriend now? And it's like, oh my God, that's... And the dialogue is so bad in places. But do you know what it feels like? It feels a bit like one of those Nicholas Sparks films. You know, like The Notebook or that? Edgar Jones makes it work because... Did you just say The Notebook was a bad film? Get the fuck out of here. Nah, I love The Notebook. That's made me cry the first time I watched it. How many times have you ever seen a film in a swamp, set in a swamp, right? And nothing happens at all with any dangerous animals in the swamp. What does she eat? She, she eats grits. Because that's the only thing her dad let her buy in the shop when she was a small child. Grits. Grits, yeah. What is that? It's like an American, it's like an American yeah, it's like oatmeal, isn't it? It's like an American breakfast food, I think. Oh, okay. American listeners, please correct us if we're wrong. Okay, so oatmeal. She's eating, she's eating oatmeal. Porridge, basically, for her entire life. Yeah, well, that's, perhaps that's why she's got such a good complexion. I'd kill someone as well if I'd ate porridge from my Tyler. <laughs> well, here's the thing, right? The whole way through with the whole court case thing, it's, oh, did she kill him? Did she not kill him? We don't really care. But I would say the courtroom stuff's probably the worst bits of the film. Like, her, And what what she does well in it is the scenes where she's just by herself 
she conveys it all in her face. You don't need the shitty voiceover. And to be fair to this film, it doesn't have nowhere near as much of it as I was expecting. Credit to the filmmakers and that side of things. But this is a perfectly standard... I'd, I'd give it a three out of five, man. It's a perfectly... It's a fine Sunday afternoon easy watch. Right, you'll probably enjoy it if you watch it. And I think it's one of these things that you go in, watch it, you enjoy it. If you try and dig too much into it, then you're going to find problems with it. But as a pure surface film, it was fine. And Edgar Jones will be a massive star pretty, pretty soon. Friends, Romans, TV watchers, spoilers ahead. Next up, David, I'm going to talk about the third series of The Umbrella Academy. Have you ever watched The Umbrella Academy? Yeah, I have. We watched it, um, me and Natasha threw it on not long ago, maybe about three or four months ago when we were sort of in between shows and nothing was really happening. And we got about six episodes or seven episodes into the first season and then just stopped watching it altogether for absolutely no reason. Because better stuff was out. You know, do you know like those shows that you just start and then just and then just and then for some reason you just stop watching it and you never go back to the next episode yeah yeah it's a it's a force watch and not in a star wars kind of way you watch this about you say about three four months ago right uh, roughly yeah okay okay that's interesting david yeah so i binged the umbrella academy season three the, uh, over the past a week and a bit and uh yeah i enjoyed it although i had completely forgotten about the show until that third season rolled around uh thank god for season two recaps because honestly without that I could not remember a single thing, let alone a character's name from when I started watching this. Now, you watched this three, four months ago. Without Googling, can you name me any of the Umbrella Academy's characters? Uh, what, their own names? Or the, the character names, yeah. Them? Not the actors, no, the oh. characters' names. That's fine, it's fine, mate. I couldn't, I couldn't either. Uh, there's, okay, wait, no. okay, let me go through them. Let me go through the ones that I know. There's a young boy who's actually, yeah. like, really old. Um, yeah. because he's What's a time traveller. Oh, I don't know. I don't know her name. There's... um Number five. Okay, number five. Number one, and number two, and number three, and number four. Yeah, that, Are these I'm the names? Accepting... That, I'm not accepting those. I need character names. Damn it. Okay. Um, then you've got the bl- jo- the gent that's up for the new James Bond film, who's like massive muscles, but he looks like he's Miss Leg Day. Yeah, that's um, Tom Tom Hopper, the actor. Tom Hopper, playing... thank you. And his character is Luther, and he's part man, part monkey. Yes, yes, he's yeah. That that's his thing, yeah, because he's a like half gorilla, isn't he? Uh, you've got the gent that was in um, Robert Sheehan, yeah, Sheehan, yes, Robert Sheehan. He was in Misfits, who's basically playing the exact same character that he played in Misfits. And in he Umbrella, is Klaus. Uh, Klaus, awesome. Uh, and you've got um, Elliot Page, is in yep. it as well. Uh, she's the main character of the first season. See, I know. I see. I can remember it. That's it, right? And then you've got the the you've got the monkey butler, the 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 gorilla. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The I can't remember what kind of monkey he is. And you've also forgotten Diego, who was the assassin knife guy, and Allison. And there's a, there's a the woman gu- as well. See, that's what I mean. You got excited there when you remembered it, and you remembered the characters. But it's a show that when you're not watching it, it's completely out of the conversation, isn't it? Like you don't see really people talking about it online. It's not like a big show where people go on and on about. It just doesn't seem to have legs. Right, I'm going to kind of catch you up a little bit, David. So the plot in season three, in the simplest of terms, is that um, season two actually takes all place in the 1960s for some reason. Um, and they have to... <laughs> <Okay>. have... <laughs> is it another, oh, we've got to save the world, the world's ending? Yeah, yeah. There's another apocalypse storyline and uh, it's a whole JFK thing. 
And at the end of season two, the siblings arrive, Back to the Future 2 style, back in a new alternate 2019. But in this reality, they were never born and they are now in an alternate Sparrow Academy. It's not the Umbrella, it's a Sparrow Academy. However, it's still run by their villainous father, Reginald, who's still alive in this reality. Cue fighting superhero groups, because of course they don't like each other or get along immediately. Oh, and uh, by existing in this alternative reality, they have also created a grandfather paradox and something called a Kugel Blitz, which of course, what's it going to do, David, by the end of the season? Going to blow up. It's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy the world. Yep, yep. There you and go. the universe. Yeah. Pretty much plot-wise, exactly the same as the previous two seasons. Oh, something's going to destroy the whole world again. But probably one of the best things the show got right this time round was Elliot Page's transition in the show. Because obviously when the show started... He was uh, Ellen Page, and yep. she played Vanya. Yeah. Elliot transitioned to she transitioned to Elliot, and now Elliot in the show become sorry, and Vanya in the show now becomes Victor. And in the show, it literally was as simple as he went to get a haircut and says, "I'm Victor now," and every in the family was cool with it and carried on as normal. And I was watching it thinking, Do you know what? If only things could be like that in the real world, why it just was it, like. Boom, if only things no could be that simple, yeah, and no one, yeah, no one exactly. yeah, and everyone's allowed to be who they want to be uh, without being ostracized. But that's what was good. They didn't make it a story point. It was like one scene, boom, done. Let's move on with the story. And the characters stayed the same. It wasn't, it was just really well done, I thought. Now, the plot of the show is so labyrinth that I'd need a full pod just to explain more than I've already said. Suffice to say that from all the characters, I couldn't remember them in previous seasons. This season, for me, one of the standouts is Rita Aya as Lila. And uh, she steals pretty much every scene she's in this season. She gets all the best lines, and the character is just really fun and stands out. Also, of course, as you mentioned, Robert Sheehan's Klaus is just... Uh, you know he's going to be great, despite being a drug addict. <laughs> he's a drug addict, he's an alcoholic, but he can also speak to the dead. And in this season, he actually gets a bit of training and discovers another really cool power later on in the season. What I would say, one major, major issue I had with the show, and I read that quite a few other people had, is, and this is a minor spoiler here, is that one of the characters uses one of their powers to sexually assault another character. And then it's brushed over and barely mentioned again. And unless this is a plot point they're going to come back to in season four, it's definitely a major misstep for the show. It just felt really like out of place. Like okay. I know you're trying to make I know you're trying to make a certain character villainous, but the fact that it was brushed over and just he's like, wait a minute, this should be a major, major thing. Also, you know, like the, the main bad guys in the season you've just watched, season one, are the commission. They were they? I don't know. <laughs> they might have been. <laughs> they were kind of the mainish bad guys we didn't in the finish end. It. So fair enough. But what should be a major twist reveal where we find out who started the commission again you find out who starts a commission and then it's almost brushed away like oh well yeah but we need to put a pin in that storyline because we're probably not coming back to it because by the end of season three the show's definitely moving in a massive new direction again now i know sometimes in these type of shows it's a fine balance between story and plot and by that um, by that i mean sometimes so much happens in a show that just recapping a series of events would take several encyclopedia volumes and then there are other shows where literally the plot of an hour-long episode is we need to cross a river. Yes, 1883. If you boil down the Umbrella Academy to its most base form, though, for this series, it's simply two groups of superheroes arguing and fighting each other every episode in either the Sparrow Academy 
or the Obsidian Hotel. So it's like two locations. Also, a big bugbear of mine with these type of shows is that any character death doesn't really stick because superpowers and alternate realities, and they play the fake death cards so many times this season that honestly, by the end of the season, I can't remember who's dead or alive. And, uh, you know, by the time season four rolls around, I literally, I will have to have a season three finale recap to remember what characters were still alive or dead by the end of it. And again, season four looks like it's going to be taking its main plot from a section of Back to the Future 2, as did this season a little bit. So again, you've got a high watermark to hit there. So I don't know what it is with this show, but and as good as it is, it just doesn't connect with me. And I feel like it doesn't connect on that bigger level for a lot of people, because generally on Twitter, I don't see people talking about it very much. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't have much of a legacy, does it? Um, it's not left much of an impact on people. You're right there. Because when the first season came out, I remember Netflix pushed it hard uh, with their marketing. And it, it it must have taken some sort of, you know, form because it's had three seasons and it's going to have four. But Yeah, it must, get, it must get enough viewers watching it for them to continue it. I, I also think they kind of gloss over the... Che- I'm not saying it's cheapness, but this whole season took place in pretty much two locations. And it kind of reminded me of, uh, there's an old sci-fi show from the 90s called Sliders. And as the budget went down every season, and I remember the last series of the show, they pretty much all started every episode and spent half of it in this hotel. And I kind of got that vibe from this show. I mean, not to say it looked bad, like the, the, the special effects are still decent in it. It's still very funny in places. It's not a show that you feel you need to tell people to watch it because you're like, oh, it's so good. You know, it isn't one of those shows. You're like, oh, you know, if you've got a spare nine hours then yeah it's all right it's more like i would i would say if you enjoy it it's just more of the same so i'm gonna give this a six out of ten which is it's good but not great Fair now right. david finally finally we can put the increasingly terrible terrible miller jovanich and paul ws anderson films behind us and despite yet another forgettable new attempt last year with Welcome to Raccoon City, yeah. once again, the bloated corpse of the franchise that is Resident Evil is upon us again. As we once again, we get yet another new interpretation of the Resident Evil mythos in Netflix's new show. Now, it's had pretty mixed to bad reviews so far and seems to be another one of these shows that keeps jumping between timelines because apparently audiences are, aren't conditioned in the modern day to watch a story in chronological order. And from what I've heard from other reviews is that the show is essentially about Lance Reddick, who is playing Albert Wesker and Albert how Wesker. shit of a daddy is. So, David, are you enjoying Albert Wesker shit dad? Uh, well, Neil, this is where I might be a little bit controversial and I might go against the, you know, the general consensus that this is a shit show. I don't think it is a shit show. I think it's been mismarketed uh, by using the Resident Evil IP. Because the show is essentially, like you mentioned, it's set in two timelines. Mm-hmm. The um, past and the present. In the past, we're essentially seeing how the outbreak took place uh, through Albert Wesker being a shit dad and his two yeah. kids who are basically, one of which, Jade, is the biggest little shit you've ever fucking come across. Well, she is. But you could tell that she's had a bad father growing up and that she's, you know, she's been brought up into a world... Um, where she's had to really stack it, stick up for herself, and then she's just so she's a free spirited young woman, uh, and her twin sister, who is not her twin sister, who is like a it's weird. So she's her sister, but she, then they're twins, but from different mm-hmm. mothers. 
Okay. Knowing nothing about the show, do you think one of them's been genetically engineered and all that kind of stuff? Most likely, Neil. Most likely. But um, hey, hey. essentially, uh, very early on in the first, second episode uh, in the past scene, one of the daughters, Billy, gets bitten. And because mm-hmm. she's a uh, vegan and she sees that uh, rack, she sees that um, umbrella are sawing this um, umbrella. That's a, that's a link to what you were talking about. That would have been a good segue, Neil. You missed that. That would have been a brilliant segue I know, from missed, the Umbrella Academy. I'll, I'll, I'll say it now and then I'll throw it in. So from the <laughs> Umbrella Academy to the Umbrella Corporation. <laughs> there you go. Beautiful. So, Seamless. Uh, they're beautiful. The um, anyway, they, she realizes the umbrella crowd is doing animal testing, and then she's just like, "Hey, we got to go save the animals." And she goes down there, and she just fucks everything up. For she the lets world. some monkeys yeah. out, doesn't she? For the world, she does a full on twenty eight days later, and she shouldn't. Goes she should have left shit. the monkeys alone, man. Yeah, just leave these monkeys alone. It was a dog well, in this case, but, but yes. Um, but anyway, as I was saying, I think that it was marketed badly by using the Resident Evil IP. I don't think it's a in itself a bad show it's not a good show in any means but um using the resident evil and the fan base that it has and not really being respectful to the source material 100 percent, not doing um essentially pandering to what the fans want in in itself was a mistake if it took away the resident evil um label uh and used it if you had called it Dr. Wester, Plague Dad. I think it would have had slightly better reviews, yes. Um, <laughs> however, the acting and performances from pretty much the whole cast aren't fantastic. Um, aside right. from Albert Wesker himself, Lance Reddick, who um, gives us some serious um, Giancarlo Espinito, Gus Fring vibes from Breaking Bad. Nice, nice, nice. Um, and it is really good. And there's also an actor who I'd never heard of called... called um, Turlau Convery? Turlau Convery. Turlau Convery. Yeah. He's a Northern Irish actor who is essentially the um, villain of the piece from in the in the future who is okay. um, hunting Jade Wesker in the future. So he works for Umbrella. He's an agent for Umbrella and he's hunting Jade Wesker. He gives... He's He is the charisma of the performance. He is essentially... An evil Jack Black. Evil can you Jack imagine Black. an evil Jack Black, Neil? Yes, I can. He uh, there was a little scene in Richard Linklater film called Bernie, where Jack Black plays a a morgue attendant who kills a lady, and he's evil in it. So yes, I've seen evil Jack Black. Okay, I've not seen that, but anyway, imagine an unhinged <laughs> Jack Black. It is essentially Jack Black. He's got charisma in him. He's got um, his his acting chops are quite good. I quite enjoy any any scene he's in is enjoyable within the show and you can't say that for a lot of the cast for instance there's some really bad performances from some of the core members but he is a shining light and i'm gonna enjoy which you might have to cut because it's a spoiler and that's made yeah, me sad. of course i will <laughs> okay okay so on a out of 10 or out of five scale what do you give resident it's Evil? a solid uh out of 10 it's a six uh a three out of five that's where i'm at with it because i'm i'm enjoying it as a show for what yeah. it is however don't think like it needs to be then the fact that it's a resident evil 
show is a mis- is a mistake. Okay, I, I I'm gonna check it out. It's on the list, man. Sometime I might I might have a crack through this weekend. They one they do. I'm the, I I also think they do a very good job of balancing the past and present storylines by keeping it. Um, you never want to when it whenever it cuts back to the other one, you're never like, oh for fuck's sake, I'm bored of this storyline. I want to just get back to the present or whatever. It does a good way of balancing the two. So what I will say is if you're a fan of the games, especially the original games, in any respect, I don't think the show is for you because you will feel disrespected almost by the source, by what, what's happening and how they've not following the material of the games, so to speak. And even if you're a fan of the original, uh, well, the original movies, uh, you know, the story of Alice, um, again, might not be for you, but you'll probably enjoy it a little bit more than if you were just a fan of the games. Uh, but give it a go if you're uh, a fan of the sort of zombie zombie archetype of TV shows. Well, next up, David, once again, Apple TV have another winner on their hands. And this time it's a six part adaptation developed by crime legend Dennis Lehane based on the autobiographical novel In With The Devil, A Fallen Hero, A Serial Killer and A Dangerous Bargain for Redemption by James Keane and Hillel Levin. I mean, you can see why they changed the title of that on TV to something else, because this show is called Blackbird. Blackbird tells the story of James Keane, Jimmy to his friends, a promising athlete turned drug dealer who is arrested and accepts a plea deal which he believes will give him four years. However, the judge goes hard on him and he gets ten years without parole. Given his likability and natural charm, the feds offer him a chance to commute his sentence if he transfers to an even more dangerous prison and if he can find out from an inmate there where this inmate buried the bodies of some missing girls. Now, Jimmy is played by Taron Egerton and it's the first time I've seen him doing an American accent and he pretty much nails it out of the gate. He's also been in the gym, David, and he looks ridiculously massive. Now, (laughs) this could maybe be connected to his Marvel meeting with Kevin Feige because he is rumoured to be the next Wolverine. Well, he does spend most of his time in this show in a tank top, so throw in some CGI claws and I think he's got it down. He's definitely got the American accent off to a T as well now. I think we do have our new Wolverine here, though, because Egerton is excellent in this, and he's the guy he's always coasted by on his charm and suddenly realising his life depends on being charming enough to find the bodies and not get murdered in prison. And the man he has to be friends is the very strange Larry Hall a former janitor and Civil War reenactment enthusiast who the police initially discount because he's a serial confessor of crimes and there's some of these crimes, there's no way he could have committed them. So you kind of create doubt early on that he was even responsible for some of the crimes he is accused of. Now, Hall is played superbly with Childlike Menace by Paul Walter Hauser. Hauser is probably best known for his awards-nominated work playing the title role in Clint Eastwood's Richard Jewell about the real-life security guard who spotted a domestic bomb attack in Atlanta in 1996 and then was accused of being involved with it by the FBI before eventually being cleared when someone else was convicted of the crime. Now, Hauser is a haunting presence on screen, and initially you do wonder if this simpleton is capable of what he's accused of. And it's just a brilliant performance that is unsettling, because he'll be talking, then he'll just stop and stare off into the distance, and also the character has a weirdly high-pitched voice. Now, there's a is parallel like, story uh, like... a little bit like Mickey Mouse? Or is it a bit like uh... Take it down about 10 decibels, but still a little bit high. Okay. Like uh, this? Like C- kind of. I mean, that's creepy as hell anyway, to be fair. But yeah, he's just... When you see the show, man, he's um, really creepy. Okay. So there, there, there's a parallel storyline going on with Greg Kinnear playing Detective Brian Miller 
who suspects Larry in one of the cases that he's trying to solve. And that kind of brings him into the show's main narrative. There's also a great performance by Sepedia Moafi as Agent Lauren McCauley, who presents Jimmy with the deal to get the confession out of Larry. Uh, she's superb as a kind of techno-shit agent who she can see right through Jimmy's cocky demeanour straight away in the first episode. And then she obviously starts working with Greg Kinnear's detective as well. And last, but in no way least, rounding out the cast is one of the final on-screen roles for the legendary Ray Liotta, playing Jimmy's former cop father, who seems to be a bit of a massive loser as well. Blackbird would be a truly excellent show, even if it was just a basic prison drama. But what elevates it are the two main performers by Hauser and Egerton. And once they get together, it's this game of cat and mouse. Now, I'm four episodes in out of the six that are to air. And I keep wondering if they're going to pull a primal fear, usual suspects, where Larry is revealed to be some kind of genius. Because he does have moments where he seems very competent. I would not be surprised to see that he's easily figured out that Jimmy is only being his friend to get information and that he's been toying with him all along. I get the feeling that's where the show might be going. And also, I'm not sure where Greg Kinnear's uh, detective storyline is going and how he connects to the larger plot of the show. Because why would he still be involved with the case once the FBI and McCauley are on the case? So you do have some really great acting in it and a clever central mystery to the story about is Larry guilty or not? And also, is Larry only playing stupid when he could actually be really intelligent? So like I say, it's a uh, six-episode show. The first four are up on Apple as we record this. And they come out weekly on Friday. There's only two more episodes to go. I think this is a show you're going to quite like as well, David. And I think it'll be why uh, Natasha work as well. Because, hey, it's cops and crime. Yeah, I think, I think I'll like it as well. I think Apple TV is knocking it out of the park. Uh, I think any show that's created by the author of Shutter Island and um, Mystic River is um, going to be good. <laughs> For me, this is a solid 8 out of 10. And also, the music is done, bizarrely, by Scottish rock band Mogwai. <laughs> I had to look at it and I was like, Mogwai? No, what, the band? And it is, yeah. All the incidental music and the show's main theme, done by Mogwai. So, there you go. Remember, don't feed them after midnight, don't get them wet, and sunlight will kill them. And finally today, I'm going to be talking about Netflix's new big action blockbuster, Spectacular, which after Red Notice and Six Underground, releasing a high bar for them to cross. However, this time it's the Russo brothers of Infinity War Endgame fame. And though for me, they will always be the directors of some of the best episodes of Community, one of the greatest modern day sitcoms of all time. Now, their first film since Endgame is the drably titled The Grey Man. That is a shit title. That is not a title that makes you think, oh, fucking hell, that looks like an interesting film. Let me watch that. Maybe if it was called, like, The Grey Nippled Man, that'd be different. But The Grey Man, uh... uh I mean, if you're of a certain age in the UK, when you hear The Grey Man, you just think of John Major from Spitting Image all the years ago. Uh, as the former Prime Minister, he was like, he he was just the most boring Prime Minister ever at the time. And yeah. they would just have a grey puppet of him. And so Grey Man is just that for me. But it stars Ryan Gosling as a former criminal recruited to be an off-book government assassin called Sierra Six. And when he questions his orders on a mission, he then becomes the target of his own agency. And of course, being the best in the business himself, the agency needs to bring in a loose cannon outsider called Lloyd Hansen. Lloyd Hansen, more like. Played by with villainous relish by Captain America himself, Chris Evans, with one of the shittest moustaches to ever grace a screen. Now, <laughs> the film had a budget of over $200 million, and it's definitely supposed to be the start of a major franchise for Netflix, as it's based on a series of books by author Mark Greeny, with currently eight sequels to The Grey Man published. He's essentially publishing about a book a year at the moment. 
And you know what? The action's pretty great as to be expected. There's a lot of globe dropping. Dropping? There's a lot of globe trotting. But there aren't any really memorable set pieces that you would get in a top-tier action film like your Bonds, like your Mission Impossibles, or your John Wicks. It's all just merely fine here, without anything truly blowing you away. Reggie Jean Page is in it, playing a major antagonist called Denny Carmichael. He's the new boss at the agency, um, and he's ably supported by Jessica Hemwick as a government goon. You've got smaller roles for the always excellent Billy Bob Thornton as Sierra's original recruiter and former head of the agency. And you've got great actors like Wagner Mora from Narcos and Alfred Woodard. One of the film's biggest crimes is that after her scene-stealing performance in the last Bond film is you've cast Anna Diarmas and you do less with her with more screen time. You know, she was so good in that Bond scene, wasn't she? Mm, yeah, and she's yeah, in yeah. this more and she does less. And she's supposed to be a, like another brilliant assassin agent. You're like, why would you not do more with her? Like, it's an absolute miss there for me that one of the most bankable stars on it and you don't have a do hardly anything. But this feels like a very 90s action film in all the best ways. It kind of feels like Face Off where you have two massively charismatic movie star actors, well, facing off against each other. And Evans is having an absolute ball as a morally bankrupt assassin who was too brutal for the government, but who the government turned to when they want to keep their own hands clean. Gosling gives his classic man a few words, sardonic deadpan delivery action hero, and they both bounce off each other really well, metaphorically and literally. So much so in some cases that I really wish in some scenes there was actually less action and more scenes between the two of them because the film really crackles into life when they're interacting. Drones, David. We have to talk about drones. Now, the Russo brothers have cleanly, clearly seen what Michael Bay did with his insane drone camera work in Ambulance and thought, we'll have some of that, but about half as much as he did in that film. The film has had fairly mixed reviews with critics genuinely not really thinking much of it, with largely two-star reviews or worse. But you know what? You take a quick look around the internet, and I think, like you said with Resident Evil, most fans are seeming to actually quite enjoy it. For me, solid three-star action movie. It doesn't do anything original or really memorable, but, you know, putting Evans versus Gosling is a great idea, and they mesh really well together. You've got a great supporting cast, although, as I mentioned, it's a crime to waste Anna Diama so much. And uh, do you know what? Since I started scripting this pod, news has broke that according to Netflix's mysteriously unknown metric system, the film has been a massive success. I mean, don't they always say that? But they're already working on the sequel and the Russo brothers are coming back. And all the cast who were still alive at the end of the film are also coming back as well. And if that wasn't enough, greyness for you, a spin-off movie is already being planned, written by Zombieland writers Paul Wernick and Rhett Reese. So get ready for a lot more greyness in the future. Nice. I, I did see that there was going to be a sequel, which I think that news coming out so early after the first film, is a, well, it's a good sign that the, sh- the, the clearly felt the film was going to be a success and has been a success. Yeah. But I also feel like it was a bad point to come out with that news because, oh, okay, so like neither of the characters are going to die or you know the main characters or... You don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but that's I haven't seen it. But I feel like oh, now it's worth I don't a watch, need man. to know. That I feel like now I know that you know Chris Evans and Ryan Gosling are probably going to both survive in some capacity. Um, but if you've put uh, a film with Ryan Gosling, Chris Evans, and uh, Renee Jean Page in the same film, that is going to make me very wet, Neil. And I'm uh, I'm going to watch it. <laughs> well. I'd make sure you wear a nappy before you watch it then, David. Oh, okay. Is it going to get that bad? Is it? Is it that? Oh, nice. I don't know how bad your problems are. <laughs> right. Well, that's all about the time we have for today. But I have to do a quick shout out to our new followers. 
Um, our new followers at Doug, who you can find over at pullupapew at wordpress.com. Simon Appleton, who you can find at Movie Mustache and A Year in the Career, a Bruce Campbell podcast. Got to give that a listen. Uh, Times Rejects at failedinventures.com. And Tessie Cat, who you can find at 20th Century Flicks on Twitter and at Cinema Chords on Twitter. And the reason these guys are getting a shout-out was, in honour of my rant about 1883 on the previous podcast, I said I would give a shout-out to whoever our 1,883rd follower on Twitter was. And of course, the second you mention that, everyone responded that quickly that I had four, we had four new followers in the space of a couple of minutes. And I honestly have no idea who it was. So, thanks to everyone there who actually did. Now remember, if you'd like to leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of your choice, we're pretty much in all of them now, and thanks for listening. See you next time. You, 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 you can feel free to just stop following now as well if you wanted. That's okay too. We won't. We won't hate you. I will hate you, David. We'll remember. We'll remember. Pepperidge Farm remembers. <laughs>